Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan. I'm the worship director here at Westview. And this is my first time preaching to you all, which is exciting. Thanks. And I'm really excited because I think God has something really good for us this morning. God is here with us and he's speaking, amen? And he's here with the spirit working. And so I'm really looking forward to opening up the word of God with you this morning. I want to start by asking you a question. Why do we love stories that have happy endings? Stories where some adversity is overcome, all wrongs are made right, and as the cliche goes, we live, everyone lives, happily ever after. Why do we feel a deep sense of ache when we hear stories that have tragic endings? It's because every single one of us longs for a greater story, the story of the gospel. This is how people like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien saw myths and fairy tales as, as pointing to the gospel, as expressing a longing for the gospel. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that God has planted eternity in the human heart. We all long for God. We all long for the gospel, whether we know it or not. And the story that we're going to read today is a part of that greater story. And it's a way better love story than Twilight. So move out of the way, Romeo and Juliet. Move out of the way, Pride and Prejudice. And let me tell you all the love story of Isaac and Rebecca and the story that that story points to, the story of Christ and his church. Two disclaimers before we begin. This is not a sermon on marriage. So husbands, men, keep in mind as we go through this story that you are Rebecca in this story. You are the bride. All of us in the church are the bride. Disclaimer number two, we're gonna look at marriage as a metaphor for God and his people. God often uses things in our day-to-day -day lives to show us how he relates to us and how we relate to him. But that doesn't mean that every single one of us should be married any more than Christ being our shepherd means that we should all own flocks of sheep. So if you're here this morning and you desire to be married, let that desire show you in a deeper way how much God desires you. And I wanna recognize that many here have had painful experiences with marriage. And this picture is marred and corrupted by sin. It's true. But in all its goodness, it points to a greater and perfect reality, one more wonderful than we could ever imagine. So let's get into this story. Let me pray. Lord God, I pray, would you speak to our hearts this morning? By the power of your Holy Spirit, lift our spiritual blindness and let us taste and see your gospel anew, that we would be transformed by you. I pray, Lord, give us the power to understand, though it's too great for us to understand how high and how deep and how wide and how long is your love for us. Would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen. Amen. So, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Genesis 24. If not, that's okay. Scriptures will be on the screen. Let's start from the beginning. 
Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. So Abraham is getting old. In the chapter before, his wife has just died, and he's probably thinking that his time might be coming soon, and he needs to secure his lineage, so he needs to find Isaac a wife so that his descendants and their descendants would inherit the promise that God made to Abraham. And what was that promise again? That Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars, and that they would be a special people with whom he would dwell. They would be his people, and he would be their God. So for this promise to be fulfilled, Isaac needs a wife. And he can't marry a Canaanite woman, even though there's plenty of Canaanite women around, for the same reason that the ancient Israelites couldn't marry into the nations around them, because they would be tempted to go after their gods, and the people of God must worship him and him only. And we can see the importance of this mission in the way that Abraham sends the best of the best. He sends a senior servant, the one who's in charge of all that he has, And he asks him to swear by the God of heaven and the God of earth. So God is the one who is going to hold him accountable to this. Also, anybody ever swear an oath by putting your hand under someone's thigh? It's pretty intimate. There's kind of a lack of consensus as to exactly what this means. There's some ideas out there. But what we can say is that this adds to the seriousness of the oath. Kind of like somebody who would put their hand on the Bible and swear. And in the New Testament, we're actually given a warning against giving oaths, but that's another sermon. But what we can say as well is that they would have been very close, right? If your hand's under someone's thigh, he's making this oath to Abraham and they're face to face. Kind of like how we would say to somebody if we're not sure if they're telling the truth, hey, look me in the eye and tell me the truth. They would have been very close when he made this oath. And I want to emphasize here that the servant is being sent on Abraham's behalf and consequently on Isaac's behalf. And in this story, we're going to see a picture of God the Father sending the Holy Spirit to get a bride for his son. Of God the Father and God the Son sending the Holy Spirit to get us, the beloved, the church, Let's keep reading. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. So the servant asks a fair question. She's never met Isaac. What if she's not willing to come back? What if she's not willing to come back with me? But look at the faith of Abraham here. He says he will send his angel. 
Abraham knows that God is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. He always has, and he always will. God has promised Abraham descendants, and so he will provide a wife for Isaac. And why can't Isaac go himself? Well, the promise was a promise of land. And if Isaac leaves this land of promise to go to the land where Abraham came from, he might be tempted to stay there. Okay, it's a non-starter for Abraham. Abraham is intent on obeying and trusting God. Let's keep reading. Then the servant left, taking with him 10 of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Neherim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please, let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. So you can see from the servant's prayer that he's completely reliant on God. God is the one who's going to accomplish this. And notice how he says, let her be the one you have chosen. The servant is not going door to door with a long checklist asking every woman, and why do you think that you would make a good wife for my master's son? No. God in his loving kindness has chosen Rebecca, and in his sovereign will, he's provided the occasion and the means through which she will become a part of this family, a part of the special people of God, and an inheritor of the promises of God. And my friends, the glorious gospel truth is that the same is true for us. God has chosen us, and he has provided the means through which we become a part of his family, and through which we inherit all of his promises. We can see this in Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. It says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Church, before God made you, before you took your first breath, before he knitted you together in your mother's womb, before he even made the world, God saw you, he loved you, and he chose you to be his own in Christ Jesus. He saw every moment of your life, every sin, even the things that you're most ashamed of, and he loved you with a perfect love. And knowing that we would turn from him, he provided a means through which we would be his own, our Lord Jesus. In verses six and seven, it says, so we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. We rebelled against God. We turned from him. 
We were separated from him because of our sin. But in his love and grace, God sent his one and only son to become human for our sake and to live the life we couldn't live and die the death that we deserved. By his blood, he purchased our freedom. By his death, he paid the penalty for our sin. In the scriptures, it says the wages of sin is death. And he paid that for us. And rising in victory, he defeated the powers of sin and death, and he gave us life in his resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. Christ takes what is ours, and we get what is his. We are only the beloved of God because Christ is the beloved of God. We don't have to qualify to be the beloved because Jesus already fulfilled all of the qualifications. He takes our sin and our shame and he gives us his perfect record of righteousness. We're wrapped in the robe of Jesus, in his robe of righteousness. And so that when the father looks at us, he sees his son. And he says over us the same thing that he said over Jesus in the waters of baptism. You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Or, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Church, would, would you hear God saying that in love over you today? You're my dearly loved son. You bring me great joy. With you, I'm well pleased. You're my dearly loved daughter. You bring me great joy. With you, I am well pleased. Go ahead and put your name in there. It's yours because you're in Christ. Friends, how are you still trying to earn the affections of your God? How are you still trying to earn his love? I invite you this morning to repent of that, confess it to him, and receive who God says you are in his word, that you are his beloved. Let's get back to our story. So before the servant finishes praying this prayer, Rebecca comes out with her jar on her shoulder. And we know from later in the chapter that the servant wasn't praying aloud. He was praying in his heart. So it's not like she was listening and then ran out. God has already planned this. He orchestrated the whole thing. He already knew what the servant was going to pray. And there she was on her way as he was still praying. Let's continue picking it up in verse 17. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. Friends, this is a big job. Camels drink a lot of water. And we can see that when the spirit of God is working in somebody, that manifests in love and kindness because she's doing a great kindness for this stranger. And so, just continuing on here, without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. 
When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing 10 shekels. We know again from later in the chapter that after he answers the question he's about to ask, the questions he's about to ask, he puts these on her. Then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. So the servant rightly gives glory to God. He's done all of this. It was his good pleasure to bring Rebecca into his promise, and he's bringing glory to his name by doing so. Friends, God's plans for us are always for our good and for his ultimate glory. I'm going to summarize the next part of the story. Rebecca runs home, and she tells her family all that's happened, what the servant had said, and they, they welcome the servant in. And you'll notice there's, there's, that there's a lot of rushing, and I think it's because there's a lot of excitement. They're seeing that God is doing something. And then the servant tells the family all that's happened, and it's a fairly long and detailed retelling. And you might ask, why did the author, both human and divine, decide to put this retelling in the text? Why didn't he just say, and the servant told them everything that had happened and then just moved on? Instead, we have a really detailed retelling. And in some ways, there's even more details in it. I think it's because it's crucial for us to see that in the hearing of the servant's testimony, their eyes were opened to what God was doing, and their hearts were exhorted to respond in faith. The Apostle Paul says in Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Church, we need to restore our reliance on the sufficiency of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation for everyone who believes. This, this simple retelling of what God has done, like the servant, just saying, this is what God has done. And so when we declare what God has done in Christ, people's eyes are opened, and we need our eyes open to the truth in the hearing of the gospel. And here, this, this opening of our eyes, here we see a picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to get the bride in both the declaration of the gospel and eyes being opened as it's being received. They needed the servant to open their eyes and we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. In Ephesians 1, 8 to 9, it says, he has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And then in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what, what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is a part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is a gift from beginning to end. Even our belief in the gospel is a gift. 
The Lord has poured out his wisdom and his understanding on his people. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand the gospel and to have faith in the gospel. He led and inspired the writers of scripture. He empowers and guides the church in sharing the gospel with the world. And I'm confident that he's here right now, lifting our spiritual blindness, that we would see the truth. It's all the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this should give us great confidence in sharing the gospel in our day-to-day lives because it's not our work, friends. The Spirit is already on mission. We just get to join him, just like the servant in this story. He was just following God. God had orchestrated the whole thing. And so we can have great confidence going on sharing the gospel, knowing that it's, it's the Holy Spirit who will lead us and guide us, and we just have to be used by him. We just, we just tell the story. We just declare the truth, and it's the Holy Spirit who brings sight to the spiritually blind, and it's the Holy Spirit who brings sight to our spiritual blindness, amen? So back to our story. The family has heard the full testimony of the servant, and then he asks, now if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, so I may know which way to turn. Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord, We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go. Let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. So the family responds in faith and they give their blessing. But Rebecca still has to give her answer. The servant gives them gifts, and these gifts that are given to Rebecca, we might wonder what they represent, what they signify. And I think they're a glimpse of the wealth of Abraham confirming the testimony of the servant, that he is indeed blessed by God. They're also a part of the inheritance that she's to receive. And I think they may also be a type of pledge showing that Abraham and Isaac are serious about this proposal. About this proposal. So what gift are we given as the bride of Christ? Let's see what it is, or rather who it is, in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed... You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So what's the gift of the bride of Christ? The Holy Spirit. And we're told here that the Spirit is a seal. What is a seal? Well, it's like a signature. Way back in old times, they would seal up envelopes, letters, scrolls with wet wax. This is back when Pastor Jeff was in college. (laughs) Just a joke about my dad being old. Um, Moving on. And they they would stamp that hot wax with a family seal, with, with, with a symbol that represented, this letter is from me, or this letter is mine. Much like we might get a custom stamp made for our books, we might stamp them with ink and say, this is is my book, it's my property. 
Friends, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, God filling you with his spirit, is God stamping you and saying, mine. You belong to me. Property of the Most High God. Amen? And so why is this important? It's because it gives us full assurance. We can be fully assured that we belong to God. The full inheritance belongs to us. And we have a part of it now as we wait. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can be assured that you will be saved. And as the song says, oh, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. So the Holy Spirit is also called a deposit here, part of the whole. And if part of the inheritance is God, what do you think the, the entirety of the inheritance is, friends? It's God. The greatest blessing God gives us is himself. And one day, we as the people of God will be in the fullness of his presence, in the fullness of the, tri- in the, in the, fullness of the presence of the triune God. The inheritance already belongs to us. We just haven't received all of it yet. And this, this Greek word in the text for deposit, it can also be translated as a pledge or maybe a promise or, or a guarantee. And we can find that same Greek word in the modern Greek terms for engaged or engagement ring. In filling us with his Holy Spirit, God declares us as his bride, his beloved, his people, his prized possession. And this is all to the praise of his glory, as it says in verse 14. This is all to glorify him, that our lives would glorify him forever, and that he could point to us in all future ages as examples, as literal manifestations as, sh- as a showing forth of the immeasurable, incomparable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We, his special people, will bring him glory forever. Which leads us to another glorious truth. In verse 18, it says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light, right? Ministry of the Holy Spirit so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. So God is our inheritance, but we're his inheritance. Why is that hard for us to believe? Why is that hard for us to swallow sometimes? God actually wants us. We can look at ourselves and think, I'm no inheritance. I'm no prized possession to be desired by God. Anybody else ever feel like damaged goods? But here's the thing. Christ has made us holy and blameless. He's made us the beloved. This is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. I will be their God and they will be my people. He will be ours and we will be his. It echoes the words of Solomon. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Friends, God is actually looking forward to spending eternity with you. And he was looking forward to it before he made the world. So, what have we seen so far? 
we've seen that God the Father chose us in love. And, and, and he sent his son to come low, to rescue us and to purchase us by his blood. And then what did he do? He offers us his Holy Spirit. And he says, will you be my beloved? And the only response required of us, the only work, is to say yes. It's to receive this free gift of grace. It's to believe. And make no mistake, you can deny this invitation. And then the only thing received is judgment, just condemnation, death and hell. But for those who believe, we are given life and life eternal with our God. So what was Rebecca's response? Well, let me summarize the next part of our story. There's a dispute between the servant and part of Rebecca's family about when she should leave, about when they all should leave, the servant and Rebecca. And now comes the big moment where Rebecca will decide whether she is going to go with the servant and become the bride of Isaac, whether she will marry this man. It's a big decision. And notice that she's being asked to do the same thing that Abraham was being asked to do, to leave the land that she grew up in, all she's ever known, probably the house she grew up in, all the people she knows. It's likely she wouldn't see any of them again. It was a long trip. And how does she make this decision? What does she say? Look at her response of faith here in verse 58. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. You know in the Hebrew, this is one word, I will go. I love that. It just shows the faith of Rebecca. One word, I'll go. No problem, I will go. How could she do that? She's never met this guy before. She's never even seen him. But friends, doesn't that sound like the questions that we get from non-believers about our faith? How could you believe in this God? You've never even seen him. How could you give up so much of your life for this God that you've never met? And our response is similar to Rebecca's. We believe the testimony of the servant. And we've been given a gift. We believe the gospel and we've been given the Holy Spirit. We experience God in the here and now. The apostle Peter says you love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you, you trust him and you rejoice with, an, with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. What's the glorious, inexpressible joy of the beloved of God? Trusting that he will fulfill every single one of his promises to us and that we are receiving the salvation of our souls. How else could I respond to the God who loved me, to the God who chose me, to the God who rescued me, to the God who dwells with me, 
and to the God who is preparing a place for me in eternity with him. That's a God I want to give myself to. How about you? And so we give ourselves to him, and like the traditional wedding liturgy says, forsaking all others, and knowing that we won't do it perfectly, but in the grace of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we live our lives for him and for him alone. We seek to do all we do for the glory of him and him alone. We put all of our ultimate affections on him and him alone. We choose to trust him and him alone. We choose to be satisfied in him and him alone. And we refuse to believe the lies of this world that tell us to seek after that which we already have in Christ in anything and everything else. We're familiar with many of these lies. Here are just a few. Prove to yourself and everyone else that you're worthy of love and acceptance. What's our response? No, I'm the beloved of God. I'm already completely loved and accepted by him, and I can live from that place of being loved, a place of overflow. And I can actually love people better because the more deeply I understand how much God loves me, the more deeply I can understand how much God loves you and how much God loves everyone. Here's another one. Anxiously build up success, legacy, wealth, and pleasure. Get as much as you can because this world is all we got. Keep stuffing your life full of pleasure and accomplishment until you're satisfied, which of course we know never comes. We're never fully satisfied in those things. And what's our response to that? No, I'm the beloved. Though this life is fading away, I have an inheritance that will never spoil or fade. So I can truly enjoy the things of this life because I'm not afraid of losing them. Right? It's pretty hard to enjoy something when you're afraid of losing it. And I can enjoy them with thankfulness, not expecting them to do and satisfy me in the way that only God can. Sometimes we hear this in the phrase, live your best life. Well, my best life is in heaven, thank you very much. I don't need to be stressed. Here's a similar one. Fear the future. Be terrified in despair with all this talk of war and climate change and economic recession, artificial intelligence, pandemics, and all the other realities of suffering and death and uncertainty. What's our response? No, I'm the beloved of God. My life is safe and secure in his hands. And he makes all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Speaking of purpose, here's another one. Find your purpose and identity in what you do and what you can accomplish. No, I'm the beloved of God. My purpose is in glorifying him and in living a life of love for him and others. All of these lives pull us into living a life of faithlessness. But sometimes, friends, our faithlessness can look pretty pious and spiritual. It sounds like this. Do this and don't do that, and then you'll be worthy of God's love. 
read scripture this often, pray this often, don't sin in this way, don't sin this often, then you'll be worthy of love. Then you'll be worthy of God's love. Neither of them are the gospel. And they cause us to live in either guilt and shame or to live in arrogance and pride at what we've done. It's not the gospel. What do we say? We say, no, I'm the beloved of God. Christ has paid for my sins and he's given me his righteousness. Now I do the good things that I do out of love for him, out of a place of being forgiven to bring him glory. I've struggled with all of these. I'm right there with you, friends, particularly that last one. Just last week, I was praying and I was feeling the weight of guilt over some sin and I prayed something like, God, I choose to believe that your love is greater than I could ever ask or imagine. And God showed me that even as I condemn myself, he's loving me. How can I believe that? Because I'm in Christ. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what's our response to all of these lies, friends? It's no, I'm the beloved of God. So what lies have you been believing? Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show you and ask him to give you faith in the truth. And you can pray with the man in scripture who said to Jesus this beautiful prayer. I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, I imagine Rebecca during her long journey might have looked back a few times and thought, what am I doing? Did I make the right decision here? But I imagine that she would have looked at the servant and clinging to the gifts that he had given her, thought, no, I'm gonna trust what he said. I'm gonna trust that God has chosen me to be Isaac's wife, to be a part of this family and to inherit his promises. And then she would have looked forward with joy and hope to what God had for her. We have to continuously look to the pledge that God has made to us as we go through this life. We have to keep looking to the gospel and remembering that God is with us because what got you on the road keeps you on the road. You never graduate past the gospel. You only go deeper into it. You have to keep reminding yourself of this story, of this reality, and choosing to live in it. And let go of the lies of the world because it's hard to hold on to the promises of God when our hands are full. So what's my exhortation to you today? It's simple, and it's so important. Believe the gospel. Believe that you are the beloved of God and rejoice with an inexpressible joy because your God is faithful. And no matter what you face in this life, you know the end of your story. Would you like to hear the end of the story, church? Now Isaac had come from Bir Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. 
So she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And now our story. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Hallelujah. We will be comforted as Isaac was comforted. We will experience perfect love and joy with our God forever, and he will receive all the glory. There's your happily ever after. This is the joy of being the beloved of God, knowing that he is ours and we are his forevermore. Don't worry, beloved. Your God is faithful. Don't worry, Rebecca. Your husband is waiting. Let's pray. Father God, how can we thank you enough? How can we thank you enough for making us your beloved? That in love, you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you came and, and, and made us your own and that we will dwell with you for all of eternity. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to it afresh this morning. Let us rejoice in it anew this morning. Let us give you all the glory for you are worthy of it, Lord. Help us to live our lives in light of this reality, in light of the truth. Help us, Lord God, to turn from the lies of the world and to live as your beloved. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. Take a seat. So here's the portion of our service where we have time a Q&A. You can text in your questions as always and raise your hand. I don't want you feeling tempted to give him some softballs because this is his first time on the seat. We need to give him the full experience. Uh, and I want to just remind you when it comes to uh, the Q&A that we do, you can always ask questions about what you just heard. Or if there is just something that's been on your mind, we're okay. It's okay to ask questions that are a little or even a lot off topic. And uh, so do yourself a favor and save that number in your phone. So during future sermons, you know, you can ask questions that come to mind. So... With that being said, uh, raise your hand if there is uh, um, anyone in the room that has one question that you want to ask, of, or if you want to ask anonymously, you can always text it. And we have a text question, and it's not an easy one. So oh boy. brace yourself. It's actually a hard question. Uh, not everyone responds like Rebecca when I talk to them about Jesus. It's pretty rare. 
are they not chosen like Rebecca was or because they just choose not to? It's a great question. Um, I think it requires a little bit of background. I think, I think I'll start by saying like, that the quick answer is we don't know, and it's not up for us to know. Um, our job is to faithfully declare the gospel and to trust that God is working. Um, this, is, this is a larger question on, you might have heard these terms, predestination and free will. Uh, predestination being that God predestines some for salvation and others not. There are other people on the other side of the pond who would say, well, everybody's chosen and it's their free will. And I'm here to tell you, it's not satisfactory for everybody, this answer, but it's both, all right? And it's both in the same way that God is three persons in one. It's one of those great mysteries of the faith. But what we should be led to is that in the scriptures that tell us about God choosing us, what they're trying to say is that we can have full confidence that God is doing this and that none of it was us. We can't take credit for it at all. And in the scriptures that tell us about free will, it reminds us that we actually have to respond and that it's important that we go and we declare the gospel. I'm sorry if that's not a super satisfactory answer, but it's, it's both. And, and we have to be led to that response of the psalmist in Psalm 131 that says, Lord, my heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with things too great for me to understand. Instead, I've, I've calmed and I've quieted my soul. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And then at the end it says, Israel, hope in the Lord. That's a very loose paraphrase. But what's my point in all this? It's that we need to trust that our God is good and that maybe this idea of how does he choose some and how do they have free will might be beyond our comprehension. But we can trust that he's good and we just have to keep going out. And, and also, maybe somebody doesn't respond in the moment, but that seed that you plant is gonna, is gonna blossom years from now. So we don't know. So I, I really feel like we need to take the humble posture of we don't know and we just keep pressing in and trusting God trusting that he's a loving and good God and he's working out all of his plans. Does that make sense? It makes yeah? sense. Okay. And, uh, I had a feeling I was going to get something like this question because we're reading out of Ephesians and it was like, oh, we're chosen. I was like, someone's going to ask about predestination. <laughs> anyway. So, did, you know, Ryan, thank you. I think that when it comes to this specific topic, one of the big big ways that people get in trouble and show themselves to be just wrong is when someone starts to presume so-and-so isn't chosen. Yes. You know, if there was ever someone who seemed to not be chosen, it was the Apostle Paul before he was Good the point. Apostle Paul when he was out chasing down Christians to kill them. You know, that, that sounds like non-chosen behavior, doesn't it? <laughs> and yeah. then we read his words. Um, God, God can save who he wants to save, even those whose hearts are very hard. And I'm actually glad that you threw this question out because I will let you know, and some of you might be happy to hear this, some of you might be less happy, but in the next chapter, uh, when there are two children wrestling inside the womb of Rebecca, uh, God says the older will serve, or the younger, the older will serve the younger. And in the New Testament, this is quoted as 
so that God's purpose of election might stand, so that God's purpose of choosing, um, and that brings with it a whole bunch of questions that I think we're going to dare ourselves to dive into. I think we can do it with um, humility. So that's going to, that's gonna, um, I think, challenge all of us, and so that will be next week. So thank you for, for uh, what do you say, prepping the, thank you for... For, for preparing us. <laughs> okay, here we go, here we go. We're going to keep moving. Um, if God so loved us before we were even born, why does he allow us to suffer? You guys are just lobbing the easy ones at me. That's cool. Yeah, that's great. Well, one of the, one of the really common thoughts is that um, God created a world in which uh, real love could exist, so he gave us free will. And with that free will comes the ability to turn from him. So there's not like some equationary response. You have to know the story of the gospel. It was, it was when Adam and Eve turned from the Lord that they were kicked out of the garden and that God cursed the ground, okay? And, and he did that for the same reason that our bodies have a sense of pain, right? When we, when we cut ourselves or when, we, when there's something wrong, we feel pain. And it tells us, hey, there's something wrong here. And in the same way, the world is broken, okay? There's, there's natural disasters. There's, there's suffering in the world. And, and there's also suffering as a result of moral sin, right? People, we do things that hurt other people and they do things that hurt us. So, so this is a result of sin that God allowed to happen so that there would be real free will. But the important thing is, is that he's done something about it and he's doing something about it. There will be a reality like we just read where there will be no suffering. God's gonna reconcile everything. And he knew that he was gonna do that, right? It says he chose us in Christ. He knew that he was gonna send Christ. So, and, and one of the things we didn't have time to get into, and it's in verse 10, I believe, is that there's this idea of God not only reconciling us, but reconciling all things. So there's going to be a healing of all things. But the beautiful thing is, is that our God is so good, he uses even, even our pain and our difficulties to bring himself glory. And so even as we go through these difficulties, even as we go through suffering, we can learn more about how good our God is, we can grow in our faith, and we can bring glory to him. And also, we can, we can uh, help other people as they suffer and show the love of Christ that way. Because when you've gone through some suffering, you can, you can be a much better um, support and comfort to somebody else. Good answer, Ryan. Uh, so um, the answer he just gave, why does God allow us to suffer? There's this huge aspect of we're in a fallen world because of sin that we all have, we have all chosen. And for that reason, the world has hardship. Uh, I also want to remind you that there is a, another answer that, that goes along with this. And that's, we suffer in this world. Um, and I'm talking about we who are in Christ, God's beloved. We suffer in this world because God is working out something good that the suffering is working towards. For these light and momentary afflictions, the scriptures say, for these comparably light hardships, they're storing up for us and creating for us a weight of glory. And 
what it essentially means is, in Christ, we go through hardships, but if we hold on to our faith, we will, we will, we will get to a point where we will look back on that pain and we will say, oh, it was worth it. Oh, it, it, was, it was terrible, it was hard, it was painful, but I'm so glad that it happened because of what it brought forth through circumstances and what it did in me, it was worth it. And that's the great promise we have, that he works out all things for good. Um, yeah, that's just an important thing. God is working out his plan. And his plan for believers does, there are many, through many afflictions, do we... Uh, obtain the, the kingdom of God, but it is worth it. Um, Ryan, the, the question is, pouring in, um, we've, we've dealt with predestination, we've dealt with the problem of evil and suffering. Okay. What's next? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> wait, was there anything in the room, by the way? I, I didn't see any hands, but I, I guess I didn't really look. In the back. All right, bring the, bring the microphone over there, because I got a bunch of text questions, and I don't need, uh, Therefore, we should be faithful unto the end, or we should give up. We should be faithful for God to come true for us, or we should give up. Which of them? Amen. We should be faithful. And we are faithful knowing that he is faithful. Right? And even when we're unfaithful, it says in the scriptures, he is faithful because he can't deny who he is. And so it's, it's, it's worth it. Even in the hard times, we still choose to follow, even in difficult times. Amen. Amen. Okay, Ryan, we got kind of a, a, a personal question. Yep. Um, um, will our God grant me my boyfriend to me as my husband. I love him so much and don't know whether he loves me the same way. Hmm. Well, why are you laughing? This is a, someone's being vulnerable and personal. This isn't something to laugh about. It's a real question. <laughs> Say one more time. Sorry, I was just rebuking all these people. <laughs> it's an honest question. Mm. Someone's wondering... Um, they love their boyfriend. They're wondering if God is going to grant this boyfriend to be their husband. She says, uh, uh, I love him so much and don't know whether he loves me the same way. Hmm. Well, I think we're talking about going through a season of uh, what we would call discernment. We're praying and we're asking God what his will is and also making a request. Um, it's hard without knowing a lot of the background here. Um, one of my first questions, if... This is you ask me personally, I'll say, is, is this person a believer? Um, but we ask God for things trusting that he knows what's best for us. And so we, we ask him, seeking to be within his will and saying, God, this is my desire. Like, don't hide your desire from God. You, you bring it to him. But come to him with open hands, knowing that the answer could be no and that that's okay. That's all right, because if the answer is no, he's going to have something better for you. Even if that meant singleness, I'm not saying it will, okay? 
but whatever it is, it's going to be good. So it still falls back to this belief in our being the beloved of God and him having good things for us. So much of the Christian life is just having that proper perspective as we move into these, these issues, just coming back to that, to that identity. So without knowing more about the situation, I can't say more than, than that. Yeah. How do I do? Yeah, you did okay. All right. You know, uh, maybe... We'll have you uh, come on, on Wednesday night. With Wednesday nights with our young adults, uh, not surprisingly, in these sorts of conversations, we've discussed in detail questions of relationships and marriage and such. So predestination, suffering, dating. Here we go. Yep. That we're covering it all. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, I just, I just want to say, when it comes to these questions of, like, is God going to grant me this thing? The first thing to know, and this is really, this is, is the challenge that's going on in your heart right now. I'll just tell you. Is God really good towards me? Does he really care about me? Um, does he really pay attention and does he really know and does he really care? That's often the deeper struggle and the answer to that in Jesus is yes. Um, if God did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, will he not with him graciously give us all things? As in, if he loved us so much to give us Jesus, is he not going to care about the, you know, things like a desire for companionship and things like that? Are those things just going to be ignored? No, the idea is he cares. He sees all the little things and he cares. So when it comes to this specific thing, instance where you have a certain boy that, that you're with and, and you'd like him to propose to you, God, and this is to trust him, God has a better plan than you do. And maybe it is for this, but deep down, I can't tell you if God's going to say, yeah, is, is God going to lead this guy to, to want to marry you? I, I can't say. Maybe he's someone you shouldn't want to marry. I, I don't know. Maybe God knows stuff you don't know. Uh, maybe, but this is the definite. God's plan is better than our plan, and he doesn't say that from a distant place of not knowing or not caring. He sees every, every hair on your head is numbered, as Jesus said, as meaning he's paying very close attention. Every, every hair on your head is numbered. He has a good plan, and you can trust him, and you can trust that his plan is good. Um, and, and, and you can keep asking him for that. If that's something on your heart, you can keep asking. But at the same time, say, Lord, if this is not your will, take this desire away from me. If, if this, marrying this man is not your will for me, change my heart so that I can see things the way that you see things. Um, but it's okay to, 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 to ask. Was there another hand in the room? Because I know usually we don't, we, you end it now, but I just want to give Ryan a little more. I'm just having... I'm having fun, to be honest, so, so I just want to go a little longer. You guys are okay with a few more minutes, I suppose. Um, okay. All right, if there's nothing else in the room, I suppose this will be the last question. <laughs> Maybe. What should I do if someone simply refuses to hear this wonderful gospel? Should I continue to pray for someone's salvation? If God already, one way or the other... Um, if, if God already, I think it means if God are already one way or another knows, they will not accept salvation. 
Well, the point is that you don't know, right? Like we just talked about, um, there might be seeds that you're planting that decades from now will flourish, right? Was it say in the scriptures that, you know, the one planted, the other one watered, like keep praying, keep declaring the gospel by all means, because you don't know. You just don't know what God's plans are. The Spirit might open this person's eyes again decades from now, and then all the things that you said start coming to mind. So don't get tired of planting those seeds. Your labor is not in vain, right? The scriptures tell us that, that nothing we do for the Lord is ever in vain. Why? Because it has this, this eternal impact. So, so keep going. I would, say, I would say keep going. All right, good. You know, uh, we're all good. Uh, no heresy? Um, no major heresy. Oh, boy. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Send your emails to charlie at westviewmontreal.org, all right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this topic is a huge, the, the questions that are being asked under the surface, there's just so much there. Yeah. And it, it's, it's kind of cool for me as I'm sitting here because I, it's kind of been on my mind of like uh, the coming sermons, how much do I want to dive into this topic? And I'm realizing perhaps we want to go a little deeper. Um, the, the question of God being in control, the, the word that theologians use, and Ryan mentioned it, is sovereign. God being sovereign over all things. There's a question of, can God save whoever he wants? Is God able to save whoever he wants? And when I read the Bible, the answer I see is yes. Uh, no one can thwart his hand. No one can stop what God wants to do. And if that's the case, then why should we pray for people and the way that I see it is that's precisely why we should pray for people because God is able to save God has the power to save and God is doing his sovereign will this is something theologians uh, uh, smarter than me have said God is doing his sovereign plan through the prayers of his people can, um, can, can I just say too I mean our, our posture in all this it, it's, it's not our job to stand back and go, hmm, I wonder whether God is choosing this person or not. All our job is is to say, Holy Spirit, what are you doing? And how can I be obedient and live in love? How can, how can I be uh, Jesus to my neighbor? How can I, how can, yeah, how can, how can I live your love out? How can I declare the gospel better today? How can I just trust you and obey you? That, that should be our posture. Like, and... If we know someone who seems to be far from God and you just feel such a longing for them to know him, like recognize in Christ, that's probably the spirit of God working in you to pray for this person. Like you're feeling what Jesus feels, a longing for them. Um, so, so much more to say. I think we're going to get into this next week and it's going to be fun, um, I, I think. Uh, but for now, Ryan... We got a bunch of other text messages that just says, Ryan, thank you. It was a great encouragement. Um, right. Doing a, uh, doing a sermon is hard for your first time, and you did way better than me. And I'm not just saying that. My first sermon was awful. Yeah. Yeah, nailed it. My first sermon was awful, awful. And that was pretty good. So, um, so uh, thank you, Ryan. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Father God, I, I, thanks to my friend Ryan who is willing to, to come and, and uh, search your word and, and share his heart. And Lord, I just pray that uh, 
that that would not be the last sermon that Ryan gives, that you would be uh, calling and shaping him in this way. Um, I pray for us, Lord, that the words that he spoke would resonate in our heart and we would have this faith to believe that we are the beloved, the chosen, the loved uh, bride of Christ. And we would have the joy of knowing that we are loved and, uh, and that our hearts would be encouraged and that we would be able to worship you in spirit and truth. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.